Welcome to Collateral Insights, our collateral services podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan Corporate and Investment Bank podcasts. In each episode of Collateral Insights, we'll bring you the latest thought leadership, best practices, and trends impacting the collateral financing ecosystem. We'll focus on areas like asset mobilization, innovation, and efficiency, as well as other common themes affecting the regulatory and sustainable financing landscape. My name's Julianne Atkins, Sales Executive representing the collateral services business at J.P. Morgan, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Paul Peary, Head of Product Management and Digital Strategy, and Tom Pikett, Product Development Digital Lead, who will be speaking today about the very current topic of digital assets as collateral. In this podcast, we will aim to lay out what is meant when referring to digital assets, how adoption into the collateral ecosystem will likely play out, and also to try and clear up some of the misconceptions of the blockchain and crypto world. So afternoon, Paul and Tom. Hi, Julianne. Firstly, thanks very much for having Tom and me on the podcast today. And yeah, there really is a lot of discussion uh, in the market at the moment about digital assets and particularly in their use as, as collateral. The main things that are being talked about is the undeniable benefits of, of DLT. And here I'm talking about things like instantaneous and indisputable change of ownership, the ability to move these assets outside of market settlement windows, the sheer velocity with which you can move them, and the expansion of types of collateral, so releasing trapped assets or what we call hard-to-fund assets. Thanks, Julian. From what Paul has described, that's what we're aiming, certainly aiming to cover in this podcast. I think the main thing that I am excited about is that Paul and myself, we don't come from a blockchain or a DLT background. We're from traditional finance background. And so I think where we're looking at blockchain technology and digital assets and how it can make meaningful changes to the way our businesses operate is great. I think what is exciting is that the likes of Paul and myself can work with Onyx, who are our in-house blockchain experts at JP Morgan, to understand how this technology can really change the way we're operating. I'm excited to have this discussion. And that in itself really should resonate with a much broader set of industry participants than ever. Let's start by clarifying for the purpose of this discussion, what we mean by digital assets. So, Paul, let's start with you. Yeah, I think digital assets is a really broad term, and it can and has created confusion in the market. So I think for the purposes of this discussion, let's just bucket them into three different categories. This is by no means a fully comprehensive list, but it should help us work through the discussion today. So the first one is tokenized traditional assets. Here, we use blockchain as a digital ledger simply to represent, in a token form, ownership of an underlying physical asset. The asset continues to exist in its traditional form, but the digital representation is far easier and more efficient to mobilize. The token's not a separate asset, that's very important. And secondly, it can't be traded or priced independently to the underlying asset. The next bucket is natively digital assets. So here, the asset is issued and exists and trades only on blockchain. However, it usually has very similar attributes to an equivalent traditional asset. A good example is an EIB bond that was issued about 16 months ago. And this is structured exactly like an EIB traditional bond, except that it exists only on chains. It looks like a standard zero coupon bond, but it only trades on blockchain. The final bucket is one we all know, 
cryptocurrencies. Here, again, the asset only exists digitally on blockchain, uses cryptography to secure transactions, and typically operates on a decentralized system. And the key here is that these buckets go from one extreme to the other. Cryptocurrencies are the extreme, we all know the volatility, and we need to draw the distinction in these three buckets, not just in terms of structure and attributes, but also in terms of risk. One of the points that you made there was that a tokenized asset is not a security in its own right. Why is that so significant? I think it's an important distinction to draw when we think about the implications of the different types of digital assets across the life cycle of trading and from a collateral perspective, clearly, and understanding the sort of regulatory framework or the risk framework that you're actually operating in. All of the above could be bucketed as being crypto assets, all of the things that Paul has run through, so tokenized traditional assets, natively digital securities and cryptocurrencies could all be bucketed as crypto assets given the underlying technology. However, as Paul says, if you take a tokenized traditional asset and that you'll simply put splitting out the physical asset from the ownership of that asset, and so you're changing ownership using the token, which sits on a blockchain application or on a digital asset network, then you really start to see the benefits of mobility and releasing of trapped assets that you can get without necessarily issuing a new instrument and all of the sort of regulatory and risk considerations that come with that. As we come to discuss the adoption of digital assets as collateral, each of these types of digital assets will have different risks which need to be considered. I think it's important to note that the industry associations are also working to provide clear definitions and also help from a taxonomy perspective so that we do have a clearer understanding of what a digital asset is and how it fits into the life cycle of, of our businesses. We've already seen where the use of crypto assets as a broad bucket can cause confusion and trigger unnecessary questions and concerns as people relate that perhaps to the more natively issued cryptocurrencies, which is somewhat unhelpful in certain scenarios. Focusing on the use of digital assets as collateral, where's the industry right now and what progress have we seen so far? Personally, I feel JP Morgan's in a very privileged position. As Tom briefly mentioned earlier, we have Onyx Digital Assets as a private mission blockchain. And I see it as our operating system on which we can build our own line of business applications to solve various pain points that our clients have in our industry. This enables us to get these revolutionary products to market relatively quickly and gives us a significant advantage over some of our competition. Now, having said that, competition in business in general is good and certainly in the finance industry. So I think having multiple solutions around the digital assets, whether that's tokenization or digital issuance, is great for the market. And we wholly support competitive products in the market. And in fact, many of you have heard, I'm sure, of HQLX, in which we are an investor, and we collaborate heavily with HQLX and other fintech solutions that may be seen as competitive. But if we can collaborate with them, we can ensure that we don't we move from a proof of concept and an idea into a more meaningful industrialized product that can really have benefits for our clients and obviously for ourselves as well. I think depending on the type of application, there are solutions out there that look at very specific trading scenarios and where digital assets can solve specific problems. This is important that for our clients, 
there's got to be a tangible benefit in what we're doing. They've got to be able to see that and quantify it in order to buy in and adopt the technology. But I think there's some very exciting new entrants into the asset financing space out there. Tom, what are the conversations that you've been having in the market? So I think one of the really interesting sides of the discussions that you and I get to have, Paul, is when we are speaking to firms that are in the natively digital asset space, whether it's digitally issued securities or whether it's pure sort of cryptocurrencies. And we're already seeing it's happening now or has been happening for a period of time is the development of prime brokerages or crypto prime brokerages that obviously sit outside of the four walls of traditional financial institutions. And I think that is a really interesting development because there is obviously a collateral requirement there, which is remote from the sort of collateral services we would traditionally offer. But actually, the functioning of a prime broker is fairly generic, regardless of asset type. And so therefore, I think there's lots of interesting discussions that we're having. I think the important thing is that we have those conversations because recent history would probably show that integration into the existing ecosystem for these new entrants is a key stepping stone for adoption. Tokenized traditional assets allow for financial institutions to access the benefits of digital assets and DLT with relatively little technology uplift. But the work is much more on the legal and regulatory side and getting comfortable with the fact that a movement of token represents a change in ownership or a security interest in some instances. And you've mentioned tokenized as well as natively issued assets. And is that combination, is that how you see the use of digital assets as collateral developing? I certainly do. I think we'd expect more tokenized traditional assets, as we've kind of described, that they're sort of easier to assess to start with from a risk and regulatory perspective, I would argue. And we'll see more natively digital assets being issued directly on chain, meaning that they only exist on chain. We already have some existing tri-party clients who are holding such sort of natively digital assets, as well as holding traditional assets. And so they're managing a hybrid collateral pool of digital and traditional assets which is a new challenge for many institutions, but allows them to kind of access the benefits. And we've mentioned that digital collateral solutions aren't necessarily about tri-party, more around mobilization solutions. But you know, are we suggesting that the solution for natively issued assets does in fact sit within tri-party? It really depends on the exact scenario's requirements. Where does the asset need to be mobilized to? What sort of asset is being mobilized? and what sort of connectivity is needed there. I think when we think about our tokenized collateral network, as an example, we are obviously looking at tri-party as a place to deploy tokenized assets as well as natively digital assets. But also there are places where those assets could be deployed, whether it's for a CCP perspective or bilaterally. But I think a solution could indeed be as straightforward as incorporating a natively digital asset into a tri-party structure. Yeah, I don't think tri-party is going to disappear anytime soon. The new ecosystem that we've been talking about, as Tom said, with the tokenized collateral network, it is very different, but it's really another flow of another source of assets into existing products like tri-party. And the complexity that tri-party has in terms of the optimization, the eligibility, etc., means that it certainly has a place to play in the operating model for, for some time to come. And I think the challenge that clients are facing now in terms of having to manage these hybrid portfolios is not one to be underestimated. And this is another reason why 
the categorization of digital assets is important. So I think what we would expect to see is that the proportion of hybrid nature is what's going to change over the coming months in that at the moment, very few clients of our traditional regulated financial institution clients hold natively digital assets in their portfolios. But I think we'll see more and more of them doing that. And so the percentages in their portfolio will change and making this problem more relevant for everyone. And to the extent that large scale adoption is needed for digital assets to become part of the industry standard operating model, what are the considerations which will affect this rate of change? So I think undoubtedly for a regulated financial institution, the regulatory landscape is key. So we see it shifting. We see new documentation standards and regulation coming out from both industry associations and regulators on a fairly regular basis. And to a very large degree, the speed of adoption is dictated by the regulatory arena within which a firm is operating. And again, taking it back to how Paul broke out the different types of digital assets, the dependency on that sort of regulatory arena being clarified and being clear to understand is also down to the sort of digital asset that we're talking about. So a tokenized traditional asset where we're not issuing anything new on chain, for example, is something that should be easier to be able to understand, to be able to build into your sort of operating model, risk models, et cetera, than something which is highly volatile, like a native B, like a cryptocurrency. I think the other main driver is that we see firms who are looking to tangibly benefit from the efficiencies of digital assets. For example, as a collateral receiver, there's a general acknowledgement that a tokenized traditional asset moved through a blockchain application is not that far removed from a book entry transfer managed in traditional custody or tri-party. Whereas if this was a natively digital security that sits on a blockchain and we think of how settlement is completed or how do you demonstrate that there's finality of settlement and things like that, those sort of questions come up much more when you think about them on the more sort of natively digital side. Yeah, I think this is where we need our regulators and believe it or not, our regulators need us. And I think in terms of what's out there at the moment, to put a framework around digital assets and this the broad nature of them as we've described and the fact that they are changing i mean these are all relatively new but there are new ways of using dlt to issue and structure digital assets that are appearing all the time and this is complex for us and for regulators so the regulatory treatment of a digital asset is key and this is another reason why as we mentioned earlier on that it's important that a tokenized asset is not treated as an asset in its own right as julianne mentioned adoption is obviously key for what we're building in JP Morgan and for a number of other solutions out there. And we've got to get to that critical mass. And I think the regulatory framework is playing an important role in that already. We've seen a number of papers come out, the Basel paper, and in the US, you've got SAB 121. And I know in, in Luxembourg, for example, we have a DLT regulation that's already in law. And these are designed to support us in leveraging the new technology, but not adding systemic risk into the process. And again, I come back to the transparent characterization of these digital assets, which has to be based on the logical attributes that really reflect the risk and volatility transparently. So we're not overreacting. So a tokenized US Treasury at one end of the scale is not the same as a, an algorithmic stablecoin at the other end of the scale. From a risk perspective, a tokenized U.S. Treasury should be considered with the same risk weighting 
as the actual US Treasury it represents. And I think that this is an important distinction. And the regulation is coming. And I think as industry participants, if we want a logical framework that supports us and enables these new opportunities that can come through the technology, then I think we need to get involved now if we're not already involved with industry bodies, etc., and work with our regulators to put their arms around this new world. Julianne, question for you. Is this, obviously, Paul and I have talked about the different types of digital assets and the different dependencies as we've described them. Does that resonate with what you're hearing from clients on their needs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a service provider, or increasingly we refer to ourselves as solutions provider now, we very much take a partnership approach with our clients and our prospects as we see our role as, as developing products which really add value. We certainly see that industry participants are at differing stages of developing their digital agendas, both in the tokenized space where the added efficiencies are well appreciated, but also, again, more recently in the natively issued asset space, we're edging in that direction too. And that's very much a new direction for the existing tri-party product. We know adoption is not going to be a big bang launch, so it's very much a case of listening, understanding, and really prioritization. I think the groundwork still yet to do for our client base and well worthwhile groundwork is working through how a business-led digital strategy links in with their own firm-wide digital strategy. And if there's any hesitation from the client perspective, it really is to fully analyze all the options available so as to avoid fragmentation or developing new versions of closed ecosystems, which is something ultimately we all want to avoid. I do think that's consistent with the views that you've already shared on this podcast, Tom and Paul. If we were to wrap up by sharing what you view as the most important considerations in linking all these various work streams together, what would you say would be at the top of your list? So I think first is that there's an immediate relevance to all. So it's no longer just people who are interested in how to code smart contracts or who come from background that are focusing on the benefits of this technology. So whether that's digital assets, whether that's a DLT solution for a specific use case. And so it really is something that there is relevance to all here. You don't need to understand how to code a smart contract in order to be able to understand the benefits. And that really leads on to my second point, which is the future state should really be one where pools of digital assets held on different networks can be moved seamlessly and deployed to wherever they're needed. We shouldn't be in a world where there are silos. We should be in a world where an event on one application can trigger the movement of assets on another or one network can trigger the movement of assets on another. And with the growth of DLT solutions, for example, whether it's in securities lending, where there is the potential for a single source of truth, collateral systems, both traditional and digital, should be able to rely on this data to trigger movements. If we're all looking at the same data, then the operational burden associated with reconciliations is removed. But even in that sort of brief explanation from me, there are so many different parts of the business, whether it's operations, product, technology, that need to gain an understanding of what the capability of the technology. And I think that's really one of the key points for me in terms of which will help drive adoption and links all of the various work streams together. So that's how I think there's a real importance there. Yeah, I think I'd second that and emphasize everything that Tom has just said. For me, we've already said that competition is good for the market, but silos are not. 
And we are really at risk of building our own solutions, not just in JP Morgan, but in other banks and institutions, without considering the longer term ecosystem and what it's going to look like. And believe me, blockchains are not that easy to interconnect and to communicate with each other. So I think interoperability here is absolutely key. I don't think anyone can deny that the benefits the technology can deliver. But if we still have to manage 15 different blockchain solutions to tokenize our assets, it's not going to help. It's just a new fragmented market. So interoperability is important. And it's something that certainly at JP Morgan we are working on. And again, there are fintechs out there who support interoperability between blockchains. So if I was going to say something, I'd say don't go and build something. The build or buy analysis is more important than ever. So there's amazing solutions out there. And I think integration or adoption is often the best. The other point I wanted to make is on adoption. So right now we see that in order to gain adoption, what we need to do, yes, we need to deliver benefits to the clients, but also we need to insert the DLT layer, the efficiency layer into existing trade flows. That's maybe easier than it sounds, but you're adding a layer to already complex trade flow and you have to deliver significant efficiency into it to make the end-to-end chain remain economical. And the reason that we're having to do this is because for our clients, we need to make sure that trade execution remains as it is today. And the majority of the post-trade operations remains unchanged. If we can do that, then this is a real enabler for market adoption because the communications, the processes that the clients are used to are unchanged and we're just creating a layer of efficiency in the middle. But I think the real benefits of DLT will only come when we've got that critical mass and we're able to really change trade flows, move to a real-time trading, and we get those new entrants that Tom referred to, combining with new technology to bring their real opportunities. But I think for right now, the primary target is operational efficiency. I don't know what you think, Tom. Well, I'd agree. I'll kind of finish on one point, Julianne, which is that, like I said at the start, Paul and I are no experts on blockchains or smart contracts, but I think if this resonates, and certainly the approach we took, was that having discussions with service providers, having discussions with providers in the sort of cryptocurrency space, we've obviously got our own in-house expertise with Onyx, industry bodies, there are standards being created by industry bodies today for digital assets or simply have a conversation with us. We're at the stage now where really it's about gathering the information to be able to understand the capability of digital assets and blockchains and how they can actually transform the business. So I think it's a learning curve for everybody, but I think the opportunities are huge when it comes to, to digital assets. Thank you. And If those were the important considerations at the top of your list, all I can kind of read into that is that your list must be pretty impressive, which just leaves me to say that any further information required from us can be, of course, coordinated by our dedicated collateral services representative. I would also advise that this communication is provided for information purposes only. It's not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purpose of sale or tender of any financial instruments. Please visit jpmorgan.com for more information, including important disclosures. 2021, JPMorgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June the 27th, 2022. Thank you very much. 
If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe to Collateral Insights as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow JP Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. This podcast is intended for institutional clients only. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan, and do not constitute research or recommendation advice or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. Products and services discussed in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures.